This is Brother Michael A. Smith, a voice for Freemasonry, bringing to you the Short Talk Bulletin, published by the Masonic Service Association of North America every month since 1923. This, the Short Talk Bulletin podcast, is produced in cooperation with the MSA and is made possible with the generous support of a grant from the Grand Lodge AFNAM of Minnesota. This is Brother David Kahns of United Lodge No. 8, Brunswick, Maine, presenting to you Volume 80, No. 7, July 2002, Shaw's Freemasonry, by Robert L.D. Cooper. William Shaw, the father of modern masonry, was probably born at Saatchi. It is known that he was appointed the King's Master of Works to James VI in 1583. Shaw was therefore a member of the royal court. This was an important position as he was responsible for the maintenance of all royal places of residence, palaces and castles, etc. He was also responsible for the construction of new buildings, but unfortunately there is only one place remaining that we can be sure he built, the Chapel Royal in Stirling Castle. His duties covered the whole of Scotland, and he was in contact, therefore, with stonemasons all over the country. The Shaw Statutes of 1598 and 1599 are most interesting documents and are, to all intents and purposes, what we would today describe as health and safety regulations. Exactly why Shaw was so interested in the welfare of stonemasons is not clear. It may be that he was a genuinely good man who was in a position to do something for those not as well off as he, or he might have wanted to ensure that all his building projects progressed as smoothly as possible and wanted a happy and contented workforce. I think, however, that there was more to this man's motives than just that, although he might also have had those reasons in mind. It is the statutes that give us a clue. The first item of the statutes of 1598 states, First, that they observe and keep all the good ordinances set down of before concerning the privileges of their craft by their predecessors of good memory, and specially that they be true to one another and live charitably together as become sworn brethren and companions of craft. This suggests that before the statutes were written, Masons had some form of organization, probably quite informal, and that they had traditions which were memorized. They appear also to have sworn an oath binding them together. The statutes contain other words and phrases which exist in our ritual to this day. For example, entered prentice, cowan, fellow of craft, craftsman, wardens, deacons, masters, lodge, mark, craft, hide or conceal. One of the most important parts of the statutes in respect of ceremonial is contained with the Second Shaw Statutes of 1599, and which states, The warden of the lodge shall take trial of the art of memory and science thereof of every fellow craft and every apprentice according to their vocation, and in case that they have lost any point thereof, pay the penalty as follows for their slothfulness. Here we have the first known reference to the existence of esoteric knowledge with a lodge. Shaw is quite clear about what he wants done. He has created a special rule that demands that every member of the lodge is tested annually in their ability to memorize something. Unfortunately, he does not explain what that something is, but we can be fairly sure that he is referring to lodge ceremonial because he says that if they have lost any point thereof, fellows of craft are to be fined 20 shillings and apprentices 
10 shillings. Notice that there is a fine for each point of failure, so this must have been a fairly lengthy test, because if it was just about remembering a word, a grip, or a token, one fine would have been enough. What Shaw seems to be trying to do is have Masons memorize ritual, test their ability to recite that ritual, and if they fail on certain points, they will be hit where it hurts the most, their pockets. Again, we might ask the question, what motivated Shaw to do this? I think that he did so because he recognized that there was something special within the lodges of stonemasons and wanted to preserve it. But why in this manner? Most working men during the 16th century were illiterate, and so Shaw knew that there was only one way to be reasonably sure that the Masons would learn their ritual, by making them memorize it. Historians are a pretty conservative lot, requiring evidence in support of each assertion and conclusion. I suggest that Shaw knew the stonemason's ritual was worth preserving because he had been initiated into a lodge before he wrote the statutes. How else would he have known that the ceremonial, traditions, and lore were worth preserving? It seems reasonable to conclude that he had been initiated into a lodge. While I acknowledge that this is circumstantial evidence and a speculation, there is another piece of information that supports that view. The statutes are dated 28 December the day after the feast day of St. John the Evangelist. That feast day is the day that stonemasons traditionally held, and many Masonic lodges still hold, their annual general meeting to settle financial matters and elect the succeeding year's office bearers. If Shaw was going to impose his new rules on Masons, he would not have sent them out the day after the annual meeting unless he had already discussed them with the lodge members at a lodge meeting the day before, the day he probably was initiated. Here lies, I think, our greatest debt to Sir William Shaw. He formalized, organized, and made permanent the structure of modern Freemasonry. Shaw may have conceived a master plan for Scottish lodges with himself in charge, but unfortunately he died in 1602. Had he lived longer, he might have seen more of his plan revealed. Suffice it to say that there is much more to Shaw than can be covered here. After Shaw's death, Lodges were essentially leaderless at a national level, and probably is why Scottish lodges are so diverse today. They appear to have tried to adhere to the Shaw statutes with varying degrees of success, but relative isolation ensured that lodges developed their own ways of doing things. In other words, they were the same, but different. We know a little of what lodges did throughout the hundred years or so after the death of Shaw from the minutes of lodges such as Aitchison's Haven, the Lodge of Edinburgh, Mary's Chapel. Mother Kilwinning, the Lodge of Aberdeen, Schoon and Perth, etc. But these tell us next to nothing of the form of ceremonial each conducted. The gradual admission of non-operative Masons during that time meant that something did leak out into the outer world. There are several tantalizing references to the existence of the Mason word, but, as I have already suggested, this was likely to have been more than a mere word. Unfortunately then, as now, this secret was viewed as something sinister. In 1696, a significant event took place. Someone wrote out the first copy of Masonic Ritual. Of all the books on Masonic history, few mention sources like the ERHMS. Most refer instead to the first printed ritual by Samuel Pritchard of London in 1730. As these printed rituals were made available in large numbers, they were and are much more readily available for study. The MS rituals are, on the other hand, few in number and difficult to examine. 
with the existence of an entirely speculative lodge as early as 1702, the Hotfoot Lodge, the membership of which did not initially have any stonemasons, and which had a copy of the ERHMS, the implications for the idea of a transition theory are clear. Brother Cooper then concluded, Number one, it seems clear that lodges in Scotland were working a form of ceremony before the formation of any grand lodges. Number two, that elements of that ceremonial exist in modern Masonic ritual. And number three, that these earliest forms of ritual might well have derived from a single source, possibly the lodge at Kilwinning. This is Brother Michael A. Smith, a voice for Freemasonry. And this has been the Short Talk Bulletin Podcast, produced in cooperation with the Masonic Service Association of North America for the purpose of providing a common stock of vetted Masonic information to all of the constituent lodges of all of the member jurisdictions, and is made possible through a generous grant from the Grand Lodge AFNAM of Minnesota, who have been engaging and inspiring good men who believe in a supreme being to live according to the Masonic tenets of brotherhood.